Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we're continuing our series, Heaven Came Down, today, and I've entitled it, Who's Welcome at the Manger? Now, one of the problems for people in my position all across the world is when it comes to Christmas and Easter, there's only so many stories you've got, you know, and you have to be faithful to those stories because you can't go changing the figures just to be more interesting the next year. You know, you've got Mary and Joseph and Jesus, you've got the Magi, you've got the genealogies, you've got a few Old Testament prophecies, and that's what you've got for Christmas. So every Christmas I try to rewrite this and make it as interesting and new as possible. Thankfully there are a lot of new people here who haven't heard these sermons before. I always rewrite them. But you can't get too original at Christmas without being a heretic. So I'm preaching today uh, one of my favorite passages uh, from the book of Matthew. It was and is a literary masterpiece, and it was Matthew, who's also named Levi, his not-so-subtle way of talking about grace. And I want to begin with a story that if you've been around here before, you've possibly heard once from me before. In his book, The Kingdom of God is a Party, Tony Campolo relates an experience he had late one night uh, in Hawaii. Up a side street, I found a little place that was still open. I went in, took a seat on one side of the counter, one of the stools, and waited to be served. This was one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I didn't even touch the menu. I was afraid if I opened the thing, something gruesome would crawl out. It was the only place I could find. The fat guy behind the counter came over and asked me, what do you want? I said I wanted a cup of coffee and a donut. He poured a cup of coffee, wiped his grimy hand on his smudged apron, and grabbed the donut off the shelf behind him. Now, I'm a realist. I know that in the back room of that restaurant, donuts are probably dropped on the floor and kicked around all the time. But when everything's out in the front where I can see it, I really would have appreciated if he'd used a pair of tongs and placed the donut on some wax paper, which he didn't. And as I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place. They sat on either side of me. They were loud and crude. I felt completely out of place, and I was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman beside me say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded nastily, what do you want from me, a birthday party? Want me to get you a cake, sing for you? Come on, said the woman sitting next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I'm just telling you. Why do you have to put me down? It's my birthday. I don't want anything from you. Why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party my whole life. Why should I have one now? When I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the women had left, and then they called over the, or then I called over the fat guy behind the counter, and I asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah. The one right next to me, does she come in here every night? Yeah, that's Agnes. She comes in here every night. Why? Because I heard her say that tomorrow's her birthday. 
What do you say you and I do something about that? What do you think about us throwing a party for her right here tomorrow night? The cute smile crossed his chubby, chubby cheeks and he answered with measured delight, that's great, I like it, that's a great idea. And calling to his wife who did the cooking in the back room, he said, hey, come out here, this guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday and he wants us to go in with him and throw a party for her right here tomorrow night. His wife came out of the back room all bright and smiley and she said, that's wonderful. Agnes is one of those people who's really nice and kind and nobody does anything and nice and kind for her. Look, I told him, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 and decorate the place and I'll even get a birthday cake. No way, said Harry, that was his name. Birthday cake's my thing, I'll make the cake. So at 2.30 the next morning, I'm back at the diner, picked up some cray paper, decorations at the store, made a sign out of a big piece of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes, and I decorated the diner from one end to the other. Had that diner looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in that place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open and in came Agnes and her friend and I had everybody ready. I was kind of the MC of the affair and when they came in we all screamed, happy birthday. Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open, her legs buckled, her friend grabbed her arm to steady her and as she was led to sit on one of the stools along the counter we all sang happy birthday to her. As we came to the end of our singing, happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened, and then when the birthday cake was, with all the candles on it, was carried out, she just lost it and openly cried. Harry mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes, come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow them out, I'm going to blow them out. And after a few seconds, he actually did. He blew out the candles on her cake. Then he handed her a knife and told her, Cut the cake. We all want some cake. Well, Agnes looked down at the cake. And then without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, Look, Harry, is it all right if, um, I mean, is it okay? What I want to ask you is, is it okay if I keep the cake a while? Is it all right if we don't cut the cake and eat it? Sure, it's okay if you want to keep the cake. Keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I, she said, and she looked at me, and she said, I live just down the street a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home, okay? I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool. She picked up the cake, carrying it like it was the holy grail. She walked towards the door. We just all there stood motionless as she left. When the door closed, there was a lot of silence in that place, and not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Well, looking back on it now, it seemed more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But at the time, it seemed like the right thing to do. So I prayed for Agnes, and I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. And when I finished, Harry leaned over the counter, and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And in one of those moments when just the right words came, I said, I belong to a church that throws parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a minute and then he almost sneered. He says, no you don't, there's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it, I'd join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? 
Wouldn't we all like to join a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? That's the kind of church that Jesus came to create. Did he? Do you believe that? I love that story. It's one of my favorite stories. It's a true story. Would Agnes be welcome at the manger? Now, I think if you've read Tony Campolo, if you know anything about him, I don't think Tony Campolo is afraid of a little shock value. If you've been around me for a while, I think you know I don't mind a little shock value as well. It's a problem. But what if I said the Apostle Matthew likes a little shock value also? And 2,000 years ago, he inserted some things in his gospel very intentionally to create exactly the kind of response that that story created. And I want to read those verses with you. If you've got a Bible, there's, uh, we're talking about Matthew chapter 1, and there should be a Bible right in front of you. And Matthew, about three-quarters of the way through the Bible in front of you, uh, the gospel begins with page 1. It's the first page in the New Testament. And we're just going to read the first few verses of that gospel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. You're going to find this to be a little boring and tedious. If you've heard this message before, you know where I'm going. If you haven't, what is different about this genealogy? Matthew 1, 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Some good boys' names here if you happen to be pregnant. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba who had been the wife of Uriah. We're just going to stop there because that's where the shock value stops from Matthew or Levi. Genealogies were incredibly important in the ancient world. There were two groups of people who were entirely dependent upon genealogies in order to prove their own legitimacy, and when they couldn't, it actually caused problems throughout history. One of them was priests. Priests had to be the sons of Aaron, so they had to have a lineage from Aaron, and if they couldn't prove that, it was problematic. In fact, I think when there were uh, people going back to Israel uh, from captivity, there were a group of priests that were rejected because they couldn't prove their lineage back to Aaron. Kings also were dependent upon these kinds of genealogies. And in this case, Matthew is proving Jesus' legitimacy as the Messiah or king of Israel through his genealogy. And so he's doing it on several levels. He begins the gospel by talking about Jesus as son of David and son of Abraham. Well, son of Abraham goes all the way back to what? Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham is going to be a blessing to the whole world. So he's going to be Jewish. He's going to be a son of Abraham. So that's a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12 and some other prophecies after that. 
he's going to be a son of David. He's going to come through the line of David. That prophecy is fulfilled, and it first starts in 2 Samuel 7, 16, where David wants to build a temple for God. God says, you're building a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. In other words, your lineage, your physical house, your children will sit on the throne forever, and there he makes the promise that the future Messiah would be through the line of David. We also know that in Matthew 1, we have the story of how he is the son of God. So in Matthew 1, if you want to outline it easily, son of Abraham, son of David, son of God. And in verses 18 to 25, he quotes Isaiah 7, 14, which is the virgin birth passage in the Old Testament, which looks back to Genesis 3, 15. The virgin will be with child. Well, what virgin? Definite article. Genesis 3, 15, the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. So you've got all of this stuff fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. Now, interesting little factoid. After the temple is destroyed in AD 70, Jesus is actually the last person who can prove his messianic lineage because the records were destroyed. But genealogies are boring. You want to go to sleep at night, read the Old Testament genealogies or read these. But this one is not boring because genealogies are always male. They're always male. This is a radical exception. And Matthew is actually going for some shock value here. And I love his work. He basically, in the first chapter of the New Testament, read the Agnes story to a group of religious people. It's literary genius. It's my favorite passage in scripture, and it's a genealogy, but it's my favorite passage because Matthew is a literary genius, and how he weaves in this message of grace that his hearers and we cannot ignore because these four women have some history. It is argued by many that all four of them, three for sure, but all four of them are actually Gentiles. They weren't even Jews. And yet they're in the line of Christ. So who's welcome at the manger? First, the nobody is welcome at the manger. That's the story of Tamar. Now, I could have chosen some other words for her, but you'll understand why I use that word in a moment. Genesis 38 is actually this story that just doesn't seem to fit in what we call the Joseph narrative. The Joseph narrative is about Genesis 37 through Genesis 50, roughly. It's the story of Joseph's life and how he saved uh, the nation of Israel when it was just a fledgling clan. But Genesis 38 just jumps right out of the Joseph narrative. It seems out of place. And it revolves around Judah, which is actually one of Joseph's older brothers. Now, this makes sense a little later in Genesis 39 as their father is dying and he starts talking about uh, all of their sons and what they'll become and sort of gives this prophetic statement. In Genesis 49.10, 12 chapters or 11 chapters later, it says, the scepter, like a king's wand, the scepter shall not depart from who? Judah. Jesus is called the what? The lion of Judah. So the messianic line is supposed to come through Judah. It's confirmed here in Matthew 1. Judah is right in the list here. He's in the line of Christ. But it's quite a story of how Judah ends up in the line of Christ. See, Judah had three boys. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. 
Ur marries a woman named Tamar. Ur dies without children. Now this leaves Tamar in a very vulnerable place in the ancient world. Women in the ancient world, ladies, please don't kill the messenger, all right? Women in the ancient world were basically classified based on their connection to a household with a man because at stake is a woman's economic security. I mean, even today, if a person gets divorced, they lose a lot of their economic value in most, even of the Western world. Back then, it was much worse, and a woman was really at risk unless she was connected to a household. So there are technical terms. This comes, all right, so just, this is a little college classroom now. This comes from village law in the ancient world. So village law in the ancient world. That does not make me the village idiot, but village law in the ancient world. All right, so listen to this. Women were classified as women of a household or liminal women. Women of a household, now these are legal technical terms. Women of a household means they're connected to a man in this way. Either daughter with a father, so the father's taking care of her, wife with a husband, so the husband has her economic sort of interests in mind, Widow with a son. The son will grow up and take care of his mother. All right? Women of a household. Daughter with a father. Wife with a husband. Widow with a son. They will all be economically protected because of those relationships. Liminal women. The word literally means having no household. In the ancient world, a liminal woman was classified one of three ways. Orphan without a father. Prostitute without a husband, or widow without a son. Orphan without a father, prostitute without a husband, or widow without a son. In any of those three technical categories, the woman was at great risk economically. Tamar is now basically losing this husband. She's basically a liminal woman. She's a widow without a son. So she went from a woman of a household, a wife with a husband, very secure, to a widow without a son, insecure or liminal. And many women like this moved quickly to prostitute without a husband. It was not a good world for them. Ancient marriage laws, both in the Old Testament and in pagan cultures, had a solution to this, and they tried to protect women economically from being liminal. So you can find this in Old Testament, I think, Hittite law and other laws, as well as in the Old Testament itself. The next male in the family would raise up a son to protect the widow. It's called Leverite marriage laws, and they existed in pagan cultures too. So Ur dies, Tamar is a widow without a son, Onan is the number two son of Judah. Onan is supposed to step up and he is supposed to impregnate Tamar, forgive me, I mean this made family reunions really interesting in the Old Testament. Onan was to sleep with Tamar to impregnate her so that she would have a son to protect her economically. What Onan does is he sleeps with her but he makes sure he doesn't get her pregnant. I'm not going to give you any other explanation than that. He sleeps with her, but he makes sure he doesn't get her pregnant, and God strikes him dead for it. Now we're down two sons, and Judah is thinking, Tamar is high risk. I mean, there are some women in the world like this, you know, she's high risk. And he's thinking, I got three sons, and she's, two of them have 
been with her and they're done. So he says to her, when Sheila is of age, I'm gonna give you Sheila, but he had no intention of fulfilling that vow. So time passes and Tamar is getting older and, and Tamar is ready to become permanently liminal, disconnected, insecure, homeless in an ancient culture. So Tamar, and she didn't do anything wrong here. This is going to sound really, really bad. She dresses up like a prostitute. Judah is going to a sheep shearing event. He has lost his wife. He's single. She knows he's going to this event. She gets on the side of the road, veiled, and she seduces him. And she takes her basically her father-in-law, to bed. She gets pregnant by Judah, legally through this Old Testament Leverite law system. She didn't do anything wrong here. Looks really bad. But I would all agree, we don't name our daughters Tamar, do we? All right? We'd all agree. She might not have sinned, but man, this is some dicey stuff. You can't believe I'm actually talking about it. She gets pregnant by Judah. The family sees that she's pregnant and they want to execute her because they assume she's been acting like a prostitute. And then she proves that the pregnancy is from Judah because he had given her some payment that she still had. She said, whose are these? And he owns it and he apologizes. Tamar is in the line of Christ. Without this story, there is no Jesus Think about that. Matthew, who wrote this, was also named Levi. He was sort of a bad boy. He was named Levi. He's probably a Levite. He's part of the priestly family, if you will, and he wanted nothing to do with it. He became a tax collector. And when Jesus reached out to him and he came to faith, he wanted people to understand that he was an outsider and there have been outsiders like this included all the way in the life and story of God in the Old Testament. And that the religious crowd needed to understand God's grace to people like that. Tamar's in the line of Christ through her son Perez, Judah's boy. The nobody is welcome at the manger. The person with a past is welcome at the manger. Tamar played the prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. It was around 1400 BC and Israel's ready to enter the promised land. Spies were sent to Jericho. They went to the local inn, which also had an ancient side business run by Rahab. Now, I don't know why Rahab was a prostitute. She was not liminal. She did have family, but she was pagan. She grew up with the Baal religion, which involved temple prostitution. So part of the Baal Asherah cult was religious prostitution, and she probably was a part of that. She's single. She runs an inn. She's a prostitute. The spies for Israel go and stay at her inn. She had heard of Israel's God and she recognizes who she's dealing with. In fact, she's got some pretty unique insights into who God was because she says, your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. That's very fascinating because Israel often was tripped into idolatry because they thought their God was God of heaven, but the Baal God was God of earth. This is a prostitute in Jericho saying, I get it, theologically, your God is the God of heaven and earth. She's recognizing the futility of the Baal cult that she's probably been involved in. 
And so when soldiers headed to her little B&B on rumors of spies, she cut a deal. She said, my life for yours. My life and the life of my family for your lives. I will not tell on you. I will hide you. I'll protect you. And she hid them under flax bundles on the roof. She lied to the soldiers and sent them the other way. And when Israel took Jericho, there was a promise that she would be spared. And interestingly, we've actually found the ruins of Jericho and her house is the only thing standing. And the walls all of the city fell outward except for that house. Her family assimilated into Judaism. She followed the true God. A man named Salmon noticed her. And the two little doves she had tattooed on her neck right there noticed her. That's not in the text. And he married the changed Rahab, the prostitute. They had a son. You know who that son was? Boaz. As of Boaz and Ruth. Without Rahab, the prostitute, you don't have Jesus, Son of God, Messiah. She was a person with a past. She's welcome at the manger. The outsider, the irreligious, is welcome at the manger. Here's the story of Ruth. Not long after this, Israel occupied the promised land, or Canaan, and a Jewish family moved southeast to Moab, Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons. The boys grew up. They're ready to marry. There were no Jewish girls at youth group in Moab, so they married Moabite women. There were commands against marrying Moabite women. You didn't do that. In time, this Jewish family, father, mother, two sons, now who've married Moabite women, the two boys have, all three men die. So all three women are vulnerable in the ancient world. They're all on the verge of becoming, or they are liminal women. They're they're not connected to a household. And Naomi is now an an old woman. And these two girls have lost their husbands. And Naomi says to the girls, so Naomi's Jewish. Her daughters-in-law are Moabite. She says to the girls, you're young. You should just stay here in Moab, and you should remarry and I'll go back to my country. God will take care of me. But this young Ruth, this Moabitess, refused to allow Naomi to be that vulnerable. She recognized the economic position that Naomi was in. She was not going to get remarried at that stage. She was a liminal woman. She was a wife without a husband, and she was a wife without a son, or a widow without a husband, a widow without a son. There was nobody to take care of her. She was liminal and vulnerable. So Ruth said, the wedding song, remember the wedding song? Wherever you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people, my people. It's actually a, comes from Ruth to her mother-in-law, not from a man to a woman. She refused to allow Naomi to go by herself. So she went to Israel as a foreigner. She made herself available in a new country by ancient marriage customs in order to protect her mother-in-law. Boaz noticed her. Boaz married her. Obed was their son. Obed is David, King David's grandpa. So you say, what's the controversy about this? Ruth is just a great young lady. That's why we name our daughters Ruth, not Tamar. We're not embarrassed by this one. How is she irreligious? How is she an outsider? Well, Moabites and Israelites are actually related. 
Lot, through incest with his daughter, became the father of the nation of Moab and the father of the nation of the Ammonites. The Moabites hated the Israelites. In fact, when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and then they had 40 years in the wilderness, they're, they're on their way into the promised land. Remember that there was a prophet named Balaam who was hired to curse Israel. You know who paid that bill? The Moabites and the Ammonites. They paid that bill to curse Israel. So they were sort of like cousins, the Moabites and the Israelites. They led Israel into false worship of false gods. This was so bad and they said they had such terrible ill intent that in Deuteronomy 23, in the treaty between God and Israel, in the law where you find, you know, the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other stuff, this is what Deuteronomy 23 says. No Moabite can enter the assembly of the Lord for ten generations. Oh, that's some racist stuff right there. No Moabite can go to church in a Jewish temple for 10 generations. The Moabites were, if there ever was a group of people, they were those people. They were those people. Ruth was one of those people. And she showed a dedication to her mother-in-law, a Jewish woman. She was welcomed into Jewish society. She married, and without Ruth, without one of those people, there's no Jesus, no son of God, no baby in a manger. The scandalous is welcome at the manger as well. That's Bathsheba. No, it's interesting about this, and I don't like this about the, um, this particular translation. Uh, and the translators did this to make it clear. I wish they wouldn't have. I don't think they should in these situations. The word Bathsheba is actually not in the manuscripts. They put it there because she's inferred. They put it there so you know who they're talking about. I don't like it when they do that, but they did it. In most manuscripts, it simply says the wife of Uriah. She had been the wife of Uriah. So it was Bathsheba. So David had a group of 30 mighty men. It was his inner circle. Sort of his palace guard, you might say. One was named Uriah. He was a Hittite. He had a beautiful wife named Bathsheba. We know the story. The army of David is at Rabbah. That's the capital of the Ammonites. There's a siege going on where you basically starve out the city and then take it by force or starve them out and they die. But they're taking Rabbah, the capital of the Ammonites. Uriah was with them, of course. David is actually back in Jerusalem. And he's up on his palace one night, and he's overlooking the palace and everything that he's conquered. He's looking beyond it. And he sees a woman bathing on a rooftop not too far away. And he sent for her. And he got her pregnant. And he tried to cover it up. And the way he tried to cover it up was he thought, if I can get her husband back here uh, and he can sleep with her, there won't be any evidence that, you know, she was pregnant by me. It'll just look like she came a few weeks early in birth. So Uriah is brought back from the front. David uses the guise of trying to get some sort of report on the war. But Uriah wouldn't sleep with his wife during that time because the army's deployed and his thinking is, my friends can't be with their wives, why should I be with mine? I actually think he might have suspected something as well. David got him drunk, it didn't work. After a couple of days, David recognized, okay, we gotta go to plan B. So he went to plan B. 
he sent a message to the general at Rabbah to put Uriah in harm's way and when the fighting is fiercest, withdraw from him in battle. It was murder. I mean, he's on the battlefield, it was murder. He intentionally isolated Uriah in battle to be killed. Uriah actually carried the sealed message to the general of his own death. Uriah was killed, Bathsheba mourned. Quickly after that, she was brought into the palace. She became the wife of David. We wouldn't even know her name if she hadn't had an affair with David. David's decline morally in his life. That baby died, sadly. But the next pregnancy that Bathsheba had was Solomon. Most famous king in Israel's history as far as economic and regional success next to David. Bathsheba, this scandalous woman in Israel's history, is part of Jesus' lineage. Without Bathsheba, you don't have Solomon, you don't have Jesus, you don't have Jesus, son of God, baby in a manger, without Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. See, Matthew wants us to think about God's nature. He was an outsider. He knew what it was like. Can you imagine the, the apostles when, Matt, you know, you Peter, James, John, a bunch of guys who were fishermen and they're really good Jewish boys. And I mean, they're not like the Pharisees where they take it that seriously, but they were good men. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, hey, I want you to meet somebody. Matthew's gonna join us. Matthew, the traitor, the tax collector for Rome, they hated Matthew. They probably paid taxes to Matthew. It was controversial that Matthew became a part of this little religious crew. Matthew understood grace. He understood God's gift. It was undeserved. He understood what it was like to be an outsider, to feel like a sinner. He got it. He wasn't part of the religious elite. He wasn't religious at all. His other name was Levi. He probably was a Levite. He was intended to be religious. He walked away from it. And when he wrote his gospel, he said, I'm going to remind people that I'm not the only story of grace, that this is who God is. This is what he's like. He's always reaching out to those kinds of people because those kinds of people need God. As Jesus said, it's not the, the, the well that need a doctor, but the sick. It's not the righteous, but people who recognize they need help. That's what Matthew wants us to understand. So who's welcome at the manger apps? First, a couple of reasons this story is in here. Number one, I haven't talked about this, but some scholars believe that Matthew puts us in here to make Mary's story more believable and palatable in the first century. So you've got all these scandalous stories of these women in the Old Testament that are in the line of Christ, but there's another scandal going on related to Jesus' birth. You've got this little 13 year, 14 year old Jewish girl who's betrothed to a 17 year old or 18 year old man named Joseph, carpenter, and uh, nobody can explain this pregnancy. Nobody's buying Mary's story. Looks like they messed around and she's pregnant. Nobody's buying that. Some say this was put in the gospel so that Mary's story of this immaculate conception, this miraculous conception would be more palatable to those people. They'd understand 
The scandal was a part of God's history in other ways as well. Some believe that was intended to help. But obviously the primary point, God's grace can redeem and use any life. You know, in general, and I'm really bad about this, comparing ourselves to others is not a very productive thing to do, and we all tend to do it, and those comparisons tend to make us feel bad because they tend to create feelings that we're not intended to have. We're not really supposed to compare ourselves to others. The Bible even talks about it. But here, it's kind of the point. It's kind of what we're supposed to do here. You know, these, these women who are brought into the line of Christ, they're Gentiles. They're not even the people of God in the Old Testament. And, and there were a lot of people in Matthew's day who were incredibly self-righteous. They thought they didn't really need grace. They weren't sinners. They thought, it's everyone else that's bad, not us. And if you're self-righteous and you read Matthew's gospel, it kind of shows you that God isn't really impressed with that, is he? He's not really impressed. You think you're perfect? God's not impressed because you're not, and if you think you're really good, you've got a huge pride problem. So if you're self-righteous and you look at this story, it shows that God really isn't impressed with that. If you're broken and you look at this story, it shows that you're not alone. If life and your choices have put you in some tough places, it shows that you're not alone and God has always reached out to people like that. I love these biblical failures. I love reading about people who messed up. You know why? They give me hope for me. Right? They give you hope for you. Because our minds naturally go to, well, if God can use that person, then maybe there's hope for me. Because I haven't killed anybody and haven't been a prostitute. And, you know, these stories are meant to be compared. They're meant to show us God's grace and give us hope. And sometimes a lot of Christians live their lives feeling like they're sort of second-class Christians because they've got some history. They think, well, you know, I, when I was 18 to 25, I kind of racked up some some history, and I suppose God forgives, but I'm probably never going to be one of those people he can really use greatly. Well, I got news for you, to those of you who think you're not good enough for God. There are no first-class Christians. None of us are good enough for God. That's why we all needed Jesus. And the people who think they're the first-class Christians have the biggest problem, which is self-righteousness. We all needed grace. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all sinners. You know, Ten Commandments, yeah, some of us might have broken them more actually, and the rest of us just broke them in our hearts. You know, maybe you haven't killed anybody, but you wanted anyone dead? Guilty. We've all broken all of it. We all need grace. We're no different than the women mentioned here and we're no different than Levi or Matthew. Maybe you're here this Christmas season and you've never really crossed that bridge or kind of confirmed in your heart a commitment to following Jesus. 
And I want to tell you, the message of Matthew 1 was the message of Jesus. It's the same message Luke gives when he kind of, the first people who, who visit the manger, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, who are the first people visiting the manger? The shepherds. The shepherds were outcasts. They were the dirty jobs people in that era. They, they couldn't go to temple because of what they did for a living. They couldn't testify in court. They were the bad people. They're first at the manger. The angels announced it to them. Matthew and Luke both do this. They want us to see that Jesus is available for everybody, especially the people we don't think he's available for. Well, if you're open to Jesus, to what it looks like to follow him, what it means to be a Christian is simply to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came into this world to die on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sins so that you don't have to pay the penalty for your sins. And when we embrace him as son of God and savior, we also acknowledge that he has the right to be in charge of our lives. We're not gonna be perfect in this world, but God has the right to call the shots in our lives. And when we come to faith in Jesus, we're saying we're signing up for him being in control of our lives. And if you've never done that, and it's your desire to do that, I wanna put a prayer of faith up on the screen there, and I'm just gonna read through it. And I would just encourage you to, in your heart of hearts, pray this as I read it aloud. Dear Jesus, thank you for coming into this world to die for my sins, and give me eternal life. I believe you are the Son of God. And I trust in your sacrifice on the cross as payment for my sins. And I'm ready to follow you. I give you my life. I invite you into my life as Son of God, Savior, and Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now there's nothing magical about those words, except they do express what faith in Jesus, what following Jesus looks like. And if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, I'd encourage you to let me know, let a staff member know, let an elder know, and we'd love to help get you connected and guide you in your faith walk with Jesus. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this passage of scripture, and we see how Matthew is trying to throw a little shock value into a very, very religious culture, a very religious culture that expected Jesus to come from their ranks, from the ranks of the Pharisees. And yet Matthew wants us to see that Jesus has been connected to scandal long before he came to this earth. Even to get Jesus into this earth, there are multiple scandals that this group of people wouldn't have wanted to talk about. But it shows how God has always reached out to all kinds of people, people who we would deem far from him, but it's because he loves us and he wants to demonstrate grace and forgiveness to all of us. Help us this Christmas to, if we learn nothing else, to see ourselves as as embraced and accepted by a gracious God. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect, or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again, and God bless you.